welcome to the Panic Pod. Today's topic is on eating disorders, and to help me talk about the subject today um, is a friend, an expert, and a therapist from the West Coast of America. It's the wonderful Kimberly Quinlan. Um, you may recognize Kimberly from being on a previous episode on emetophobia, which is really cool. Uh, but today I wanted to get someone on to talk about eating disorders. Um, eating disorders sometimes come up in my practice, uh, comorbid with anxiety and depression and often trauma. Um, but I'm not an expert on it, But it's, so it's great to get an expert on it. And so thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing today, Kim? Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm good today. Yeah, it's a good day. Um at to play some tennis and it's getting warm here in California so I'm a happy girl. Yeah, that's all right, isn't it? Yeah, there's um in Manchester here there's a, a very loud cricket match. My office is next to the Old Trafford Cricket Stadium. So the best. Lots of shouting and hitting of cricket balls. Um but yeah. Sipping well, of tea. Sipping I can guarantee you they're not sipping tea. <laughs> they, uh, it's the uh 2020 and everyone's already drunk. Um <laughs> Yeah, eating disorders. What what do we start with that? What is an eating disorder? Sure. So, generally, an eating disorder is a classification or an umbrella term for multiple different disorders. Um, underneath an eating disorder are different subtypes, you could say, or we actually have different diagnoses. So, um, in general, an eating disorder is where there is disorder in someone's eating or their relationship with their food. Um, it can also extend out to their relationship with their body, their size, their weight. Um, it can also extend out to sort of have really over having an ideation around perceived flaws on their body. And these this ideation around body then creates um, a lot of preoccupation with food, planning of food, restricting of food, binging of food, purging of food. Mm. A disordered relationship with food, um, and I presume over a prolonged period of time, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. you know, sometimes I have unhealthy relationships with food over a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but are we talking about, you know, quite what, what makes it, uh, what's the difference between, say, not having a, a great diet and, and, and going into eating disorder territory. Right. So interestingly, if you have an eating disorder, it is a mental health disorder. However, the real additional classification is how it impacts your medical health as well. Right. So a lot of us have disordered relationship with food and body. Um, and it may more play out mentally, right? Just feeling bad about ourselves, having anxiety around food and so forth. Um, and then once we get into, um, you know, more severe eating disorders, there's usually that it's that disordered relationship has impacted them so much that they're either highly malnourished Um, they're binging and purging to the degree where they may be doing some damage on organs. Um, The thing to remember, and this is just something I'll I'll say up front, is we used to think that eating disorders are only for thin, malnourished people, but Mm. we actually have a lot of now, you know, data to show that you can be in any size and still have 
anorexia, which is a lot to do with restricting of food. Um, you could be in any body size and have bulimia, which is usually restricting and then um, purging, eat, restricting, then eating, then purging cycles, um, mm. or even binge eating. Um, so it, it doesn't have to be that you have to be in a malnourished, thin body to have an eating disorder. And that's important because a lot of people don't get diagnosed because to the naked eye, they've been they've believed that you have to have a small body to get the diagnosis. It's really interesting. Uh, there's a there's an author and a presenter here over in the UK, a very likable man called Richard Osman, and he's uh, author of the Thursday Murder Club, and he also co-presents um, a popular daytime show called Pointless, and he bravely kind of ad- admitted a couple of months ago that he has a, an eating disorder. Um, where he's has, has a, a binge eating disorder that's quite serious, um, but that's ruined like kind of holidays and parties and he avoids and anything to do with food and things. And I thought it was excellent for him to come out and, and say it because you, you look at him, he's, he's a very tall man and you look at him and you'd think, well, you know, you've not got an eating disorder. And, and it was part of the reason why I kind of wanted to explore the... the the subject a lot. Uh, I think we should break it down a bit in, into kind of rudimentary steps. So for some people, when they think of an eating disorder, they think of um, anorexia. We're in stereotype, stereotype kind of st- uh, place, a bit like how people picture people with OCD as constantly washing their hands or, or whatever. You know. the, the, the kind of stereotype sphere of eating disorder that comes to mind for, say, the layman would be kind of yeah, anorexia or bulimia. Now, obviously, they are forms of an eating disorder, uh, and there's many that can that, that apply. Um, I think we should kind of go through the most common ones, if that's all right. And, and if you could explain, because there might be people listening here that are like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm anxious, and actually, I do have an eating disorder, or know someone who has an eating disorder. Um, first of all, how would you describe anorexia? How, do, how, how does one know if they have anorexia? Mm. So you usually have to have a, a combination of symptoms. This is a little controversial even, I would say, because under the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual where we, we look up different criteria and make a diagnosis, they will have things listed like preoccupation with body and weight, restriction of food, um, you know, low body weight. Sometimes, you know, they'll discuss this idea about like a body mass index. Um, They'll talk about spending a lot of time focusing on food, preparing food or, you know, avoiding physical or social interactions because of the food that will be eaten. And so that's all there. We can look at that over the course of, you know, a period of months that's all there to look at. The thing to remember, though, is, again, I, I personally had anorexia myself. Um, but what was really interesting was I never dropped below an unhealthy weight. I mm. was always right on the line. So even when I went to a doctor to say, like, this is completely taking over my life. I, it's all I do. They said, 
you're just a healthy person. You just like to exercise. I was compulsively exercising. I was counting every calorie. <laughs> I was... Um, so, so these signs of anorexia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So counting calories, compulsively exercise. All right. Counting Sweet. calories, um, looking at like this. Uh, for me, it was... And this is true for any of the disorders I'm about to discuss as well, but, you know... Um, before you go to a restaurant, you look up their website to make sure they have foods that would accommodate your requirements for the eating disorder. Um, if you knew you were going to a friend's house, you would offer to bring a meal just so that you knew there was something that you could allow yourself to eat. Um, the idea of someone planning a meal without you knowing was incredibly anxiety provoking. I knew I had a problem when I was flying from America to Australia. I'm, I'm Australian. Um, and I was frantically like searching the website to get exactly what the airline was going to serve me, you know, six months in advance. Of course, that information wasn't on the internet. And that's when I realized like, I have a really big problem here that I can't oh. tolerate this. Wow. Yeah. And it kind of came to a head. This is why, again, why we get you, uh, got you as a guest on, because there's always something magical about Kim. Kimberly Quinlan is one, you know, one of the best therapists I know. And I think what makes her a fantastic therapist as well is that she understands some phenomenology of the people who she works with. And I think that's what makes kind of me a good therapist as well. Um, it's not always essential, but I think it's it really just adds that layer when you have some form of personal insight into that. So I really appreciate you kind of sharing that. And I, what I love about this podcast and what people like about it from the feedback I get is uh, it's really nice to hear people talk about my experience too, you know, whether it is on a personal level or whether it's just being seen on, yeah. on any level. Right. And, and and so those kind of compulsive behaviors that, that you recognize, was that the moment then when you were like, I can't believe I'm, I'm looking up the flight, the flight menu from, from America to Australia. It was there like an epiphany, like this is, this is too far or. No, I knew. I think that's when I realized I had gone too far. I was going, I'd go, I was, I was too far gone because it wasn't that I was undoing it on purpose. They, again, we can talk about treatment later, I'm sure, but what was interesting was um, a part of the difference between a lot of other disorders and an eating disorder is there is a deep unworthiness that fuels it. For me, it was, you know, if I could reach a certain body weight, well, then I will be worthy. I will finally get the love from people that I wanted. There was all these hidden distortions feeding it. And, and to go back to what we were talking about, the fact that I never, one of the diagnostic criteria listed um, that you can have is to lose of your menstruation. Right. So a lot mm. of people who are who have an eating disorder may or may not lose menstruation. And I hadn't. And for me, I didn't feel like I deserved the eating disorder term until I had checked every box on that. You weren't matching the criteria. According to the doctor, you were not not, not still not, enough. Not, not yeah, not that and, and I've still got my menstruation and I've still above the the threshold for yeah. concern. So, ah, oh, wow. So, and, and you use yeah. that. Oh, wow. So I wouldn't give, I didn't give myself permission to recover until I had 
reach that criteria. Um, it was sort of, and, and I see this all the time with clients. And if you're in that situation and you're struggling with that, um, you're definitely not alone. It's a very unspoken kind of concept around eating disorders in that there's a lot of shame around the fact that you didn't get to this high pinnacle point of the eating disorder where you, you know, reached, the, you know, having no period or getting this malnourished look on your for your body and I did I reached that and then I allowed myself to recover and that's how distorted your thinking gets that you have you have to in in this eating disorder I had to be sick enough to get better wow yeah and again I, I appreciate you sharing that and I'm trying to tap into that phenomenology of you know I, I can stop this when I'm sick enough like let me push it to the limit and i imagine that's kind of what fuels a lot of eating disorders just that very that very sentence right very driving force yeah to do it um would you say that that kind of those beliefs about kind of if i do x or y i deserve the love i deserve the compassion i deserve to respect myself would you say in your experience that from your own and obviously working with others, would you say that's a lot of the driving force behind eating disorders? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very conditional condition, exactly, in that you it's very transactional, right? If you often when you have an eating disorder, it mightn't be as calculated as mine was, but often it's if I've eaten this much, I either need to restrict for the rest of the day. So there's that calculation. That's mm. often anorexia. If I eat this much or I weigh this much, I need to purge a certain amount to sort of be good enough or to reach the goal. Because remember, the goal to Omar is often to be smaller in a smaller or a different body, right, to get control. So in that case, it's bulimia, right? Um, that That's how I also had pretty excessive um, compulsive exercise. So if I ate a certain amount additional, I had to burn off that much or more in terms of calories. So it was very mathematical. And, and is that kind of the same as someone with bulimia throwing up in, in the toilet? Yeah. Like that I kind mean, of, so it's, uh, you said it before, it was a really good word, um, not restriction. It's like yeah, get, getting back the calories or... Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's all a math of it. It's like a neutralizing compulsion. Um, It's, you know, so yeah, you may, if you've eaten, you might feel so guilty about eating breakfast, let's say that you would then feel this strong urge to throw it up. For some people who can't throw up or don't choose to throw up, they may take a degree of laxatives, a calculated amount of laxatives to make sure the food leaves their body as fast as possible so that they don't sort of retain the energy and the weight from that food. Um, So, you know, laxative use is very common for people with eating disorders as well. And again, like you were talking about that um, author or speaker is there are so many hidden ways that eating does. It's not just the person who sits at the table and doesn't eat. There are many hidden ways in which you can have disordered relationship with food and body that no one would see. You know, they wouldn't, they, you, they, you may sit at the meal and eat the whole meal and smile and be fine, but they may do these com- 
comp- like compensating behaviors right after. to kind of the, the driving forces behind them and, and how it presents. Are there any other kind of maybe common presentations of eating disorders? So describe kind of anorexia and bulimia and a lot of the similarities that they have. Um, are there any other kind of ways that it presents? So the, the, another one is commonly known as binge eating, right? And mm. a lot of pe- people don't get diagnosed as binge eating, right? Because they may be too ashamed. There's a lot of stigma around binging. A lot of, especially in the West, we put a lot of emphasis on like you're out of control if you can't control your diet, you know? So um, mm. binge eating is a really underdiagnosed disorder. A lot of people have it where they it's usually a binge restrict cycle. So you will binge, let's say you're trying to sort of fill an emotional gap or you're eating for boredom or you're emotionally eating. Um, you could, we could eat, we eat for celebratory reasons, like we eat for many reasons, but let's say you've had a really large meal and now you're starting to feel either guilt or shame around that. Often what happens is they will then restrict the next day which will then cause a drop in sugar and, you know, a, a, a massive sort of fo- focus and mental fixation on food, which causes them to be more likely to binge, which causes them to restrict more tomorrow, which causes them to be more likely to binge tomorrow as well. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the Sophia kind of yo-yo effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the binge restrict cycle that a lot of people get stuck in. And then the other one is one that's sort of newer to our set of diagnostic criteria, which is orthorexia. Now, to un- at this time, it's actually not classified under an eating disorder i've heard of this orthorexia okay so orthorexia is what we technically call an avoidant restrictive food intake disorder and ultimately what this is is consider it like a a a match between an eating disorder and ocd obsessive compulsive disorder where there is a it's not about food and body but it's about the pure health cleanliness of the foods that you're consuming and their fixation on get only eating pure. And then through that, they start to eliminate full, full food groups, wheat, sugar, dairy, meat. And that before you know it, they too are malnourished and struggling because they've eliminated it, not because of the obsession around food and body, but the Mm -hmm. obsession around uh, purity, health, and cleanliness of food. I was say, it sounds like a like a theme of of OCD. Yeah, they, we treat it similar to OCD, um, but it's under that umbrella of of an eating disorder. Is there a big comorbidity between eating disorders and OCD? Because what the word that you said that from my experience unites them both is the word guilt. Guilt is such a powerful, powerful feeling, and it can dictate a lot of our behaviours. And we know it's prevalent in things like OCD and 
from what it sounds like, it's very prevalent in eating disorders. Um, do you see a, do you see a, a comorbidity between um, eating disorders and just well, not just OCD, but just anxiety as well? Mm. People struggling with anxiety. So the the biggest comorbidity is generalized anxiety disorders for eating disorders, which is true for so many disorders, right? You know, depression and and generalized anxiety and, and, you know, so there's a huge overlap. But the second biggest is OCD. There is a massive overlap between OCD and eating disorders um, going both ways. So if you have an eating disorder, you are much more likely to then develop OCD symptoms. If you have OCD, you are much more likely to develop an eating disorder. So it does go both ways. Well, because it's obsessions and compulsions. And and the cycle looks the same. So I am an OCD specialist. That is my actual main specialty. But the reason I love treating OCD so much is my my eating disorder felt exactly like what it feels like to have OCD because there's an obsession that obsession was uncomfortable and then you do this behavior to make that obsession go away but that feeds the cycle and for me it felt exactly that way when I had it so yes there is a major overlap they play out the same we treat them very similar Um, so there but there's also you know if we're going to talk about other anxiety disorders there's usually a heavy um, overlap between eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder um, and social anxiety What's what's body dysmorphia for for people who don't right. understand? So body dysmorphic disorder or body dysmorphia is the obsession around a perceived flaw on one's body. So it's usually not just focused on body weight and size, but while it can be, that for someone who is better diagnosed as BDD, it's usually around the symmetry of a body part or the size of a body part, um, the, the visibility of a body part. And so remember, when we're diagnosing, we're kind, of, we're kind of asking questions to decide, while these two things look very similar, we're trying to figure out which one it fits best. So if someone is having a lot of obsession around a perceived flaw and they're doing eating disorder behavior, we would call it an eating disorder. If someone is having a perceived flaw, but their behaviors are more like checking behaviors, uh, you know, look, staring at their face, avoiding certain parts of their body, getting very large plastic surgeries and those kind of things, well, then we would better understand it. As Is it what's the, perhaps what's the most debilitating? And I know as well, and this can kind of lead, because a lot of this is connecting all under the under the umbrella of kind of anxiety, anxiety mm-hmm. disorders, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, but when I presume people with body dysmorphia and fixations about how they look, these are people that, who might, um, skin pick and hair pull and, and have these kind of compulsions? Can, depending on the perceived flaw. So if their perceived flaw is focused on symmetry of eyebrows, let's say, they may engage in some skin picking and hair pulling. Um, if there, if it's, you know, about jaw size or jaw structure, that it can increase that chance. But again, the obsession can be different for different people. Some people have obsessions about height, uh, p- penis size, 
you know, that, you know, vulvar size. It could be mm. as specific and as, you know, very much personal as that. It could be around skin shades, colors, and so forth. So a BDD can sort of attack any part of our body. Mm. When you're looking at kind of eating disorders as a, as a, as a whole, how would you describe the role of control or the mm. illusion of control? Mm. It's huge. Um, so control, that's sort of where, so we've the, we'll sort of conceptualize it as often with an anxiety disorder. It's often around uncertainty, you know, you know the in, unwillingness to be anxious and so forth. With eating disorders, that is there too. Remember, eat, anorexia nervosa comes from nervous, right? Nervosa is a, is a nervous disorder. That's when they first, like, coined it um so yes the eating disorder has a piece of that but there are often these like you're saying these these um very deeply held beliefs that keep the disorder going one of them being you talked about guilt and shame another huge one being control for me going on a diet was the only time i felt powerful and in control of my life the more out of control I felt, the more I dieted and controlled my body size. That was how, that was, again, it was very transactional. Something right? you can control in a chaotic right. life. That, yeah. Right. And and the reason I think that eating disorders stick is because society celebrates your attempt to get control, right? I was going to ask you about this. I mean, right. I was going to say how, how much right. does the wider, wider society right. play a part in this right so i feel i like look at me little old me kimberly from the country flies to america already having a sort of mild eating disorder feels very out of control with her life feels very scared and alone she goes on a diet she feels the most in control she's felt in a long time she starts compulsively exercising and eating very very clean and everyone celebrates her, which makes me feel even more in control and loved and appreciated. Did, did that happen to you? This is... Oh, you look great. All, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, fact. Yeah. This is fact, right? So, uh, yeah, look at you. You're amazing. You have more, you know, willpower than I. You're amazing. So I diet more and I feel more and more in control. Oh, and now I I'm, now it's the only thing I have um, to give me a sense of self-identity and self-worth. Wow. Wow. When, what would your advice be to people who may relate to this, whose work, your words might resonate with them? If something actually, you know, this, this sounds a lot like me or there's some similarities there, what, mm. what, what would your advice be to them? Well, I think my first advice would be go to your medical doctor and tell them that you think you're having a hard time. If they don't agree with you or they discard your, your concern, go to another doctor. The main reason for that is different to any other mental disorder I treat. In order for me to start treatment, I need to get medical clearance to start treatment. So if we have a client with social anxiety, OCD, depression, whatever it may be, we just start treatment. Whereas with an eating disorder, we do have to get a clearance medically 
before we can start the process. This is really interesting. Half my, well, I say half, you know, half my listenership on the Panic Pod, half of them are from the UK, half of them from the US, and they've got others from Canada and around the world. Um, so this applies to kind of West West Coast America. This is where, where um, Kimberly is. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting because in the UK, you don't need that. I mean, oh, you, you can don't. just go, you can, no, no. I mean, the system. What do you mean so, you don't need it? Um, to clearance. You don't need any no, clearance. No, the no. reason being, and let me explain that, it's not It's not a, a, a clearance to start treatment. It's that when, it, if you are malnourished or you have been binging and purging or you are binging, that usually will tax your organs significantly. Uh, and so it is important it's not it's not a um by country thing it's not to get treatment you can go get treatment anytime oh, you want it, it's the physical state you it's, might be in it's that there time. there are can, there are things that we clinicians need to keep track of as we start to get you back to eating a wider range of foods higher level of caloric intake reduce your your you know changing your body shape, shape and size or whatnot we do there is some medical things we want to get clearance for to get thumbs up to show that we're good to go we need to do a blood panel we usually need to get blood pressure then we know to what pace in which we need to do the treatment so if somebody let's say they've done a blood panel they're very malnourished that will help us to decide what kind of treatment and the pace of treatment yeah yeah, yeah. no that makes that makes absolute sense so that's yeah. the first port of call Mm-hmm. Give give me you know check me out first yeah. you know is everything all right are my levels all right exactly yeah. right. that makes yeah. total sense sense and um, and let's say you know the, the, someone's done that and they've been given the clearance and they work with stuff um, what kind of therapist would they and, and what kind of, of treatment um, would would be good for an eating disorder because I know for people in the UK it can be very overwhelming. Um, yeah. Some people just go to talking therapy. Some people have specific interventions. Some people have multi team. Like from someone who 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 is an expert, so what what should people kind of look at? Sure. So they're... once you've got clearance from a doctor, if you have access to a doctor, but if not, you can just go to your a therapist. Um, ideally, in a perfect world, it would be someone who is trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. That's sort of what we know to be the most successful. Not to say that there aren't other ways in which you can still get to the same outcome. Um, but that's, you know, someone who's willing to look at your cognitions and look at your behaviors is really important. Um, so that's one we usually, in addition at my center with my staff, we always agree that upon treatment that you have a consult with a dietitian, just because that way the person can, dietitian can look at what you're eating, give a few suggestions based on what you're ready to do because again you have to be ready it's hard this treatment's hard you have to start to eat the foods you haven't been eating and go back to maybe three basic meals a day with snacks they're going to be giving you nutrition advice so that's always beneficial as well um Mm. and in addition in many cases you need a family approach right often example might be you have a, a young teenage boy or girl don't forget boys have eating disorders as well Mm. Um, but you have a young teenager and they're beginning treatment but yet their mom is always on a diet 
and always encouraging their child to be on a diet. So we usually Mm. do have to have a family approach to this as well. You might have an eating disorder, but you have a very controlling family member or someone who makes a lot of comments about your body. Oh, I get that a lot. I get get people whose mom and dad's just obsessed with how they look. Yeah. You know, it boils my blood. It's like, you know, they're human. They have many facets and how they look is... Well, it's just how they look. I wouldn't even call yeah. it like a, a facet. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, you know, they yeah but I think that, that your comment speaks to this core struggle we have is there is a lot of uh, fat phobia in our society, right? Societally, we do treat people not so well when they're in a bigger body. We do have people bring to the table their own fat phobia. We all have it. It's not make doesn't mean you're good or bad. It's just that that's a part of our society. And so, a part of, for me is it, it was a lot of looking at and exploring what beliefs do you have about bodies? Because in my mind, a bigger body was like a quick and easy way to be unloved. That was what my mind was telling me, but society had kind of told me that as well. Mm. I had some people in my family who were said some horrible things to myself and my sister. So, so I think that that Mm. is another part of the treatment. It's not just going directly and fixing the food. You have to do all this like healing on, on your relationship to body size. There's there's a lot of kind of the societal objectification of women as well that I don't think there's any particular over the years I know eating disorders can apply to anyone of any gender but it's it's particularly you know I imagine the societal interjection of that women have had and mm-hmm. they've been sculpted and molded put yeah. on pedestals praised even yeah. kind of graphically changed you know mm-hmm. whether it's in film or posters or whatever and just having yeah. this unrealistic expectation and you can see it how it's part of that and also it fuels into that I can see how it would fuel that unhealthy escapism when our life isn't going very well well if I can put myself on that pedestal I can have control yeah it's really quite sad uh it makes me reflect as well as like you know a tall middle-class white guy you know there's, there's certain things that just don't really you know, that I've yeah. kind of been lucky to, to, to avoid. Yeah. Um, One thing I will, Matt, add just to make sure I cover for the men is there is a newer classification. It's not a diagnostic classification, but there is a... Are these the for the guys of, that get jacked? Sorry. Yeah, it's called, yeah. Big, it's called bigorexia. Yeah. Um, and it's exactly the same as anorexia. Sorry if that sounded really... <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's exactly it. It's exactly it. Men, women are taught to be smaller and men are taught to be bigger. I and, had that a lot when I was... Eight. I was obsessed, not, um, yeah. not to clinical level, but I, at, at the age of 18, I was bench pressing 130 yeah. kilograms uh, I couldn't get, because I was obsessed yeah. with with getting big, and yeah. I was really quite big, and I wasn't happy for doing it. I felt yeah. happy during it, but wasn't really happy for the few minutes once you did it. But then it went, yeah. So bigger if for the men out there, and this is kind of becoming more of a thing. Is bigorexia is is a condition that we are getting more information on. Yeah, and another example again, why society um, does that. Um, 
yeah, it's really, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because to discern between what is a hobby, you know, like professional bodybuilders, and I know, and some of them are very happy, and, yeah. and what, and what and it depends on their relationship to it. Yes. Kim, thank you so much for coming on. I could talk to you all day, but I'm not. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow, though, as, yes. we, as I join, join you on Drew's podcast um, on something about the fear of losing control, which is which I'm looking forward to. Um, before you go, is are there any rec- is there any recommended reading? And if there isn't, but it something comes to mind, I'll put it in the podcast notes. And also, where can people find you? Sure. So um, recommended reading, I th- it depends on the condition. So there is a book I recommend everyone read. It's called The Body is Not an Apology. It is a beautiful book. That's a great book. title. It is a beautiful book that weaves through our relationship with our body and has these beautiful prompts. So no matter what disorder you have or if you're even not even sure if you have a disorder but you want to heal a relationship with your body, that is a beautiful book to read. Um, That would be my first go-to book for people. It won't give you like a diagnostic of different things, but it's a very, very beautiful book. Um, And where can people hear about me? I have a podcast called Your Anxiety Toolkit, which Josh has been an amazing guest on. Um, Some have said the best. Yes. And by some, no one has said that. <laughs> no, I think I think that many have said that. Um, I you can get me on Instagram at your anxiety toolkit, and you can get me on. I have two websites. One is CBT School, and the other one is KimberlyQuinlan-LMFT.com, and that's my private practice in California. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I would love to get you on again as a guest in the in the future, um, if you'd accept. And um, because I really enjoyed the second time you've been on now and you're such a wealth of knowledge and such a wonderful person as well. Thank you for educating me on a topic that I need to read more on. And I'm definitely going to read that book that you've recommended Um, because I think it's very important, particularly people who haven't been through it, to have an an awareness and knowledge of it. You have a wonderful rest of your day in sunny sunny California and I will have a lovely evening. You too. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Kim. Bye-bye. Thank you.